If you would, please turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to continue in our series from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. I believe it will also be on the screen for you. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds, and to the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Heavenly Father, work in us through your word as each one needs today. Holy Spirit, be mighty in each one of us that we might know, love, and serve you. With all of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so a number of years ago, I was on a mission trip uh, to Belarus with a few other fellow church members. And it was a busy time. We were essentially always together as a team. Uh, but one day I left uh, the team members to meet our missions partner, Sergei Lukyanov. And after spending a couple of hours together, he and I went our separate ways. But the other team members were still busy in another part of town. Um, so I didn't, wasn't able to get together with them. I was kind of just biding my time till we could meet up again, walking along the streets, shopping or stopping various shops. And all I could think of was something is missing. I felt lonely. Not for my teammates, no, no offense to them, but for my wife. I just really wanted to be with her. You know why? Because we're part of one another. We belong together. We, we know each other so well because we spend more time together than anyone else. And in that knowing and belonging, she has become precious to me. And I was longing to be with her. I didn't feel complete without her. So Jerry Maguire was right. <laughs> you complete me. <laughs> she, she really does. <laughs> um, she is a great wife. There is goodness, pleasure, and purpose in the one flesh relationship that God designed in marriage. It reflects something of the nature of God, the purpose of God for the world. And when marriage happens according to that good design, it brings him great glory, 
and it gives grace to the world. Last week, uh, we heard from chapter 2 that um, as God has done his overall work in creation, it takes us to a particular place, to the Garden of Eden, and God's good intention for life there when the world was perfect. We discover that God is committed and engaged with the world and mankind, and he makes man in his own image. Reflecting his moral character, man is able to do good as God is good. It reflects his relational nature, his authority in giving man dominion over the world. We also discover that God filled this creation with abundance and delight. And God established a covenant relationship with mankind where he commits himself to them and they respond in love, faith, and obedience. In chapter 1, we read where God says everything man, uh, God made was good. But now in verse 18, there, there's a bit of a surprise. Something was not good, it says. The man God created is alone, and that's not good. And it's not that loneliness is the problem per se. Adam had God. Adam even had other animals. Adam could have been perfectly content just to talk with God and then snuggle up with a python or a polar bear if he wanted to. <laughs> they, they didn't... Then. But Adam's aloneness was about not having someone particularly suited for him, made in the image of God like him. So God announces that he will make a helper fit for Adam or corresponding to Adam. Uh, this word helper for this new creation, this word can be taken by some, maybe many people, uh, as subservient or inferior. But let it be known now for the rest of the sermon and for all your live long days that this word helper is most often used for God himself as the one who gives help and assistance to his people. Jesus himself calls the Holy Spirit the helper. This is no inferior term. We should never look down on that description for anyone, let alone the person that God is about to make for man that should forever elevate the purpose and identity of woman in the world. It is never inferior. Now, I, I do think it's important that we take a little time about uh, how God defines man and woman in the world. From these first two chapters in Genesis, we can accurately define and identify what a woman is. A woman is simply a human person born biologically female with female reproductive parts. And a man can be defined as a biologically male person with male reproductive parts. And here's how we know this. Right after God created them male and female in his image, he instructed them to fill the earth. That is, to reproduce and multiply and have children. That can only happen with male and female bodies. Some in our culture 
might say that uh, they were born with a male body, but that they feel female inside or, or in their mind, or vice versa. Well, according to Genesis, as I said, reprodu reproduction doesn't happen with the mind. Not by what we feel in our minds. Minds can't reproduce children or multiply and fill the earth. Only male and female bodies can do that. Dr. Denny Burke of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary says, we, pro we procreate, we are fruitful and multiply as humans through our male and female bodies. And so maleness and femaleness is theologically determined and understood by the body's makeup for reproduction, not the brain structure and function. Now, I, I just want to be really careful here because we don't want to deny that people struggle with this or even experience it. But it doesn't mean that it's right or the way God intended it to be. People may have felt that way for years, even from a young age, but it's not a social construct. It's the result of the brokenness of sin in our lives. Dr. Burke says that just because someone feels something to be natural and right doesn't mean it is. I may want to beat you up every time I see you, but that is not natural and right. I might feel that, but it's not right. So how do we respond to people who may be dealing with this? What we don't want to do is to go on a social media rant. We don't even want to go on to social media to, to, to post even a, a biblically accurate understanding of male and female without some genuine dialogue because then you're just talking back at each other i'm talking about being with people with real people with real hurts with real issues people that god might actually want us to know and interact with and care for and we are to do that with truth and compassion both truth and compassion Sometimes people, let's say Christian people, can be very firm, hard-edged sometimes, with truth. And we may be lacking in the compassion department. That shouldn't be so for the children of God. The scripture tells us that Jesus, God the Son, was full of grace and truth. That's how he dealt with and deals with people suffering in their brokenness of sin. He deals with them with truth and grace. And aren't you glad that he did that for you? You not, might not be struggling in the way that some people do, but every one of us who claims the name of Jesus has had some struggle and enslavement and brokenness and sin and Jesus came to you with grace and truth. He did it for me. People who may be living a homosexual lifestyle, a transgender or a gender fluid lifestyle, they're struggling 
with the sin of suppressing the truth about God. And Jesus has grace for them. He offers help to work through that struggle, and he does it with truth and grace. Only Jesus has the power to do that. All to say that even though we must respond with compassion, we must always hold on to truth. You can't have one without the other, right? We talk about the truth of God's image that we've been made in, and that image is expressed in maleness and femaleness, and it's, it's attached to our biological sex. It's just what God says. It's how he made us. So that was a bit of a excursus back to the idea of helper, right? So helper is not ever meant to belittle women. But the one being helped should never be belittled either. How often are men portrayed in entertainment as, if we're going to be honest, bumbling idiots who simply can't get along without a woman's superior intellect and abilities? Both the helped and the helper are meant to care for one another, work together. They were made to do that. By himself, Adam was incapable of what God wanted to do with humanity. He needed someone help for, uh, fit for him, I should say. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, a helper like opposite him. Interesting. Meaning, not exactly like him, that is, not his clone, but his counterpart. One who complements, meaning completes him. So God decides that he's going to make a helper for him but he does something interesting first. In verse 19, God brings the animals, other living creatures, to Adam to see what he would name them. Now, it's important to understand that the function of naming things in Scripture, this is important, the function of naming things carries the sense of authority with it. So in naming the animals, the man is given particular authority or headship over the created order. Now, woman is about to be created, relates to that leadership role of man again as a helper. Our friend, Pastor um, uh, uh, Warren Betcher from Sovereign Grace Marlton says that this naming of the animals is like an object lesson for Adam. Uh, Warren says that up to this point, uh, Adam's been living in a man cave. The Garden of Eden was his man cave. Like, Temperature was always perfect. He had to work, but it wasn't with the sweat of his brow. He did what he wanted to, when he wanted to, with God and, and the other creatures, right? So what more did he need? He had a need. And God brings the animals to prepare him to see that need. As the animals are being brought to him by God, most likely two by two because they were to fill, reproduce and fill the earth as well, they're brought to him. Adam begins, he's, he's naming them all, and then all of a sudden he begins to sense his aloneness. None of these creatures complete him. They all have partners. He doesn't. And they can't relate to God in the way that Adam was created to relate to God. They are not made in God's image. And he begins to realize, I, I don't have anybody suited for me like all these do. 
So Adam sees his aloneness and, and he can't do anything to fix it. He's alone. And so God steps in. The ultimate helper goes to work to make the perfect helper for Adam. In verse 21, we see how God went about solving this problem. It says that he caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Adam has nothing to do with what's going on. He's unconscious for the whole thing. God is the helper of all, in it all. Verse 22, he takes a rib from the man and he made it into a woman. In this way, this is great, in this way we see the man and woman's one fleshness because she is literally made from the same stuff as Adam. There is massive relational components here. God is not just some kind of general contractor working on a building project to fill the earth. He's establishing a deep connection between the man and his soon-to-be wife. She is literally bone of Adam's bone and flesh of his flesh. Man and woman at this point, they are as related as anybody can get. They belong together because they're a part of each other. Now, we might say that this gives us some kind of picture of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Dr. Ken Hughes says, perhaps, perhaps, since God is a plurality, that is three persons in one, and Adam is created in God's image, then perhaps the image demanded plurality as well. And so, for the woman coming from the rib rather than from another part of his anatomy, Matthew Henry says something interesting. He says, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. It's beautiful, right? But I realize there may be some speculation. We don't know that's for sure why God chose the rib. But as we consider that God made man to love his wife, lead his wife, care for her, made her a partner with him in the purpose and plan of God, I think it's, it's really a rather compelling description of woman's equality with man. There may be differences in role and responsibilities between a husband and wife, but there is equal dignity and worth being communicated here. It's, it's reflecting something of the oneness and distinctiveness in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's value for each one. Now, in verse 22, God brings the woman to the man. It's like a father of the bride bringing his daughter to her husband. And then Adam says the first human words in the Bible. This at last, at last, this is a bone of my bones and flesh of my, and flesh of my flesh. Over and over, commentators talk about Adam's joy and amazement in this companion. So again, this is not some sort of formal business transaction like Adam's thinking, okay, so I got my partner now to multiply and fill the earth. Okay, baby, let's get to work. No, it's not a business transaction like that. He says, at last. You know what Warren Betcher said? It's when, when he sees Adam, and he, another way to say at last is like, wow. 
Look at what God made for me. Here she is. She's part of me. And he's enamored with this beautiful gift of a woman. The gift is good. And it's good that Adam is no longer alone. Having brought the woman to the man, now we want to discover, we're going to discover the purpose and the nature of this marriage relationship. In verse 24, the author describes for us not just what the first marriage looks like, but what all marriages are meant to look like. This is the model for marriage. It is the forerunner. It is the proto-marriage. And we know this is so because Jesus himself, in discussing marriage in Matthew 19, quotes this very passage. So what is marriage supposed to look like according to God's good design? First of all, we see that it is to be a monogamous relationship between one male and one female. There is not more than one husband. There is not more than one wife. There are not two males. There are not two females. It is monogamous among biologically male and female persons. We've already considered that. So it's monogamous. Second, the marriage is to have priority over every other human relationship. The man is to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is not necessarily about a literal departure from one's family's home and to set up another house. You can do that. My son and daughter-in-law just did that. But in, yeah, he's going, yeah. You know what? So am I. I miss having my son at home. I do. But man, I'm so thankful he's with you, Chloe. So, Jewish culture. Newly married Jews in biblical culture often continue to live with the husband's parents or on a common family property. So, holding fast, this is about the priority and and obligation of loyalty and intimacy. It's prioritizing your spouse. They are obligated to love and care for each other above all other human relationships. I remember a friend of mine years ago whose husband was so influenced by his family that he would not step in to defend his wife uh, when his family had harsh criticisms against her. This couple owned their own house. They they lived far away from his family, but he did not leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, making her the priority. You can imagine how that relationship ended up. When we don't make the husband and wife relationship a priority, it will bring disorder and dysfunction into marriage, and God wants us to guard against this. So we have monogamy, priority. Third, this language of holding fast to uh, to one's wife carries the idea of a covenant. Now, we don't necessarily give the idea of covenant much attention or the significance that we should. We, we, We might tend to think of it as a promise that can be broken, especially with marriage. But it is a solemn, binding pledge before God. And so how you view the marriage covenant 
will depend on how you view God himself. It reveals how you perceive the rule of God, the authority of God, the holiness of God, the justice, the righteousness of God. How seriously you take God will shape how seriously you take the covenant of marriage. If you take marriage lightly, you're taking God lightly. Again, to quote Pastor Ken Hughes, he goes further. He says, to abuse marriage is actually to abuse Jesus. Because our marriages are a living demonstration of Jesus' love for the church. So this is no lighthearted thing. Now, maybe you have taken marriage lightly. Maybe you have dishonored your spouse, privately or publicly. Maybe you've been unfaithful, even if it's just in your mind. Maybe on a screen, maybe in action. And this is not just for men that I'm talking about. Jesus has grace and forgiveness available for that. But there is to be repentance and faith on the part of the one who has dishonored this covenant. So make it right. Make it right. How, you say, how do, how do I do that? Just start in prayer. Just pray. Confess to God what's been going on. And if you need to, if it's gone beyond something that it should, confess to your spouse. Admit your failures, your sin, and seek grace to help. And if you are really struggling in marriage, listen, if you're, if you're really struggling, or, or, or you feel it's on the verge, please, we, your pastors, urge you, talk to someone now before it gets out of hand. Come to one of us. Come to a pastor, to a community fellowship leader, to one of the deacons. Talk to an old, older, wise, mature Christian, one who is not afraid to be upfront and frank with you and say, this is what the word of God says. They might, they might even say something that's going to bother you. But sometimes we need that. And then come with that person and talk to one of the pastors. This is so crucial. Please, please, we beg you not to wait until things get worse because they often do. We've just recently seen a couple of marriages disintegrate right in front of us. And it didn't happen overnight. We wish they would have come sooner. So come now that you might get the help God wants you to have. So far, we've talked about marriage being monogamous, the priority of marriage, that it's binding through a covenant. And lastly, we see that it is a one flesh union where the couple is naked and not ashamed. This, of course, indicates sexual union as well as relational, emotional union, intimacy. It expresses transparency, harmony, vulnerability. It's saying, all that I am is yours. Nothing stands between us because being naked and unashamed gives a sense 
of innocence. So there's nothing to hide. There's no sin and therefore no shame before one another and before God at this point. So that's the nature of marriage according to these verses. But what about the purpose? What is marriage actually for? From these first two chapters, as well as what we discover later in the New Testament that correspond to it, we understand two primary purposes in marriage. Gospel mission and gospel picture. Gospel mission and gospel picture. From the beginning, God gave a mission to mankind. That the man and woman would reflect God's image in the world, giving man the authority to lead in that effort and gave the woman to be the helper. Together they would have dominion. They would work and keep the garden, fill it with other future workers and God imagers, meaning they're going to have kids. And they're going to have more kids and they're going to fill the earth and they're going to keep imaging God, glorifying God. Tim Chester, Pastor Tim Chester says, marriage is to be a partnership of service. Whether it's in our vocations, whether it's within our families, or in our ministries within the church or outside of the church, is to be a partnership of service. Now, this doesn't mean that um, husbands and wives have to do everything together, that they work everything together. You know, they don't, they don't go to work together usually. They can't even be together with the family all the time. I mean, goodness knows how many times I'd be at work and my wife would be like, you will not believe what so-and-so just did. I'd be like, wait till dad gets home. <laughs> we, we, you don't have to do everything in church together either. But the idea is that we support one another in whatever service it is. And whatever we do is to be done as an act of worship to the glory of God and the good of others. This is gospel mission for marriage. But you don't have to be married to do that. Author Richard Belcher says that even though singleness was not common in ancient Judaism, there, there, there came a dramatic shift with Jesus, whereby singleness was a viable option for those God was calling to give focused attention to serving his kingdom. They still have gospel mission. You still have gospel mission if you're single. I was single until I was a month shy of 36. I was an old guy. And I have to admit, it was, it was hard. All my closest friends were married. They were all having kids. And I wanted that. I coveted that. Not in a good way. It was a bit of an idol to me. Maybe more than a bit. And you know, you're always kind of on the lookout for the next person you could date, someone who might be Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And then the day came, I remember exactly where I was. I was in my parents' bathroom shaving. (laughs) And it was as if the Lord just kind of brought a new awareness to me. And I thought, I don't need to be married. And I'm not going to get married just for the sake of being married because I want what everybody else has. I don't need to be married to serve God. And with the grace of God, I resolved that I could be content, that I would be, with his help, 
to be content where I was relationally, and to give myself to the work of God and the mission of God with the people of God. So it has to be said, marriage is not required for you to be part of gospel mission or to even adequately reflect the image of God in the world. Now, it's obvious, but sometimes we forget that Jesus was never married. And you're like, yeah, but he was God. He could make it work. Well, yes, he was God. But we have to understand the nature of the doctrine of the incarnation, God becoming flesh. He really was a real man, really, all the time. He's still a real man. And he lived like a genuine man while, we, while he was here, experiencing all the emotions and joys and difficulties and struggles that we did yet without sin. And he was the most fully alive human that there ever was. And he served the mission and purpose of God perfectly. So while marriage is not required, it is still a good gift to the world reflecting God's image and fulfilling his mission in a, such a way that it becomes a picture of something greater. This brings us to our second point. We're talking about gospel mission, now we're talking about gospel picture. We get a glimpse of this in our passage and it's more fully revealed in the New Testament. We see it in Ephesians chapter five. The apostle Paul, in the end of that chapter, is describing what the marriage role of husband and wife should look like. Dan's, Pastor Dan's gonna teach on this next week, but I'm just gonna give you a couple little glimpses into this. At the end, Paul wraps up and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Our very passage from this morning. This mystery is profound, he says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see she respects the husband. Marriage is to display to the world God's gracious, sacrificial, committed love for his people, the church, which he calls his bride. It's a picture also of the bride responding to that love in submissive love and obedience. Not from mere duty, not just because God says I should, but from the heart. With deep gratitude, deep joy for that bridegroom. And guess what? When, when husband and wife uh, look to God's help and actually live out this picture of the gospel, there is profound satisfaction. Mutual joy, relational intimacy, physical intimacy that further reflects the oneness we have with God through faith in Jesus. This gospel picture points to an astounding gospel reality, friends. Listen, everybody wants a perfect spouse. And nobody gets one. <laughs> right? We all want a perfect spouse. And you might think you're the perfect spouse. You're not. Well, right, we want someone who will be like us and do for us just what we'd like. And then we get into marriage and we realize no one's like that. Some may come close, but no one ever gets a perfect spouse. 
And I, as I said earlier, we get someone who is like opposite us. Like us, but not like us. Well, God wants to be a husband to us. He calls himself the bridegroom of his people. We're made in the image of God. Of, so we're like him, but we're not like him, in particular because of our sin. And the perfect spouse commits himself to, to pursuing this imperfect, sinful spouse. But we want to do things our own way. We want to go after other lovers, other desires, other longings, other lusts, anything but him. And then we read in John 1, he came to his own, but his own received him not. That's every one of us. Pastor Tim Keller writes this, God was trying to get us back. He was trying to get his wayward bride back, but we didn't just spurn him. We nailed him to a cross. Keller says, some of you might be in bad marriages and you think, oh, my spouse is killing me. My spouse is crucifying me. But in God's case, it really happened. And yet, friends, despite all that, despite all of our waywardness, our rejecting his love, our spiritual adultery, instead of crushing us, God marries us. What? That's amazing. Who does that? He had every right to crush us. He marries us. That's what he made possible when he took our rebellion against him on himself, paying the penalty for all our sin, all our spiritual adultery on the cross for all who would believe. He permanently attaches himself to us that we might become like him, that we might become what this original mankind was meant to be that we might know deep joy and fellowship with this faithful, patient, forgiving husband who will never, listen, he will never leave you or forsake you and not even death can make you part with him. Listen again to Tim Keller and what he says about this. I think it's gonna be up on the screen. The Bible begins with a wedding. And this wedding's original purpose was to fill the world with children of God, and it failed. Because the husband in that marriage failed to step in and help his wife when she needed him. But at the end of time, there will be another wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And its purpose is to fill the world with children of God, and it will succeed where the first marriage failed. You know why? Because the first husband failed, but the second husband will not. The true Adam, Jesus Christ, will never let his bride down. Never. He's the committed husband. He is the perfect helper for the weak and the helpless. And what Adam did not do in the garden, Jesus has accomplished in his own death and resurrection. We will be forever united to him in divine marriage. That, my friend, is what our marriages are supposed to be a picture of. Gospel reality that we will know and enjoy forever. 
that will glorify God. It will give grace to the world to know this perfect husband, the one who is the lover of our souls. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's almost hard to imagine the depth of your love for those who were spurning you, turning from you, actively ignoring and rejecting all that you were, all that you are, and all that you would do for us. It's, it's almost unimaginable that you would still set your love on us and that you would call people, sinful people, to yourself through the bridegroom Jesus, through faith in all that he is and all that he has done for us. May our hearts rejoice and be glad and be humbled in this amazing truth and help us to share it with the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.